Hello and welcome to the How To CEO podcast. I'm your host, Murray Newlands. I'm delighted to be joined by David Blumbo from Blumbo Capital today. When you decided to become a CEO, the world changed. You can build an amazing company or you can crash and burn. But if you have the right knowledge and expertise, you will get to the right outcome. In today's show, we're going to be looking at how to raise a round for an AI company. I have known David Blumbo for, I think, nearly 10 years now. He has a great, really well-established firm in Silicon Valley and in Israel, and has made some amazing investments in this space. I'll allow him to tell more about himself and his fund and what he's up to. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Murray. It's always good to talk to you. You too. Thank you. So for the, for the listeners who finding it, learning about you for the first time, please do introduce sure. yourself. Well, so I'm David Blumberg, and uh, I'm not very creative. So the firm is called Blumberg Capital, but it's far more than me. There's almost 20 of us um, spread across several countries. And um, our focus by stage would be early. So we're specialists in early stage investing. That means we like to lead seed and A rounds. Uh, by geography, we're reasonably open-minded, but we've focused, I would say, on North America, both US and Canada and Israel. But we've done deals from other places, particularly Europe. We um, focus by domain, mostly with software companies, and particularly ones that are B2B and algorithmically intensive. So we're very strong now these days in a lot of AI-enabled companies. We have a very strong fintech portfolio, cybersecurity, data and analytics, enterprise software, and two emerging areas that are um, of appealing nature to us would be transportation mobility and healthcare IT. So in that realm, there's an awful lot going on. And so we feel very excited and uh, optimistic about the future. And our network is um, expanding all the time. And it's, it's interesting, it's sort of self-reinforcing. You, you know, you start being in this business for long enough that a new company will come to you. And then you can look at where they've worked in the past and do a reference check very easily because you know many of the people that have invested in them or their co-founders from prior or et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's really wonderful to have this ability to just by looking through your list of you know, contacts, be able to add value or, or do research uh, in a very efficient way. And I would really like at this point to recommend David and his uh, firm to you. When I met him, he was at a uh, conference. We were both at a marketing conference. He was working really hard on behalf of his portfolio companies. And now I've also hmm. known a number of his portfolio companies, and they have said amazing things about what uh, he and his firm have done for them. So um, that's why I wanted to have him on the show and, and share his Yeah, and it's again, it, Thank you. I don't mean to interrupt you. It, it's not just again about me. You know, we're yes. joined by you know a number of senior um, team members. I won't name them all right now. They're all on our website, which is BlumbergCapital.com. Um, and we have one thing that is very interesting. It's not usual for such a small firm to have this, but we have a very significant CIO council, which has been existing for know, about 15 years, and. It has almost 150 members on it, men and women who are leaders in mostly software IT management, but also we have some CIO, CISOs, Chief Information Security Officers, and other technology leaders. And these folks get together eight times a year, both coasts, New York and San Francisco, in person or by phone. And we put our portfolio companies in front of them and they pitch and they get feedback on all kinds of things. The go-to-market strategy, the messaging, the pricing, the value proposition, et cetera, surface ideas for partnerships, for distribution, for maybe changing the marketing um, messaging for a company. They will often offer to become beta sites or first customers. 
So it's just a wonderful feedback mechanism for a CIO to get in front of a lot of serious potential uh, customers in, in a quick, uh, easy, friendly format that's confidential and uh, almost always helpful. That's great. That's great. So yeah. uh, diving into the question, um, yeah. what you, you say you're an early stage investor, um, looking at AI firms, particularly uh, in 2020, mm -hmm. what kind of rounds are you seeing? What does an A round look like right now? Oh, okay, so there's some new data out actually about the numbers. I can give that to you. Um, this is from PitchBook and NBCA, uh, which is do a joint uh, data review of uh, the 2019 numbers that they have the, all the data in. And if you're interested in the size, um, they categorize them by angel and seed. I would put that all as seed. They call early VC what I would call A, and then they have late VC, which is probably B through E or something. So the interesting thing is that seed round size are increasing a little bit. The A rounds are increasing a little bit, but the B plus rounds are increasing a lot. That's where the volatility is. That's where the inflation is. That's where the effects of SoftBank and other mega funds and frankly, corporate investors coming in who are less motivated on price and more motivated on certain strategic value that they are deriving uh, have had a massive impact on the whole market. But the seed and A areas are still a little bit more, I'll call it rational or, or modest in their uh, valuation um, increases. But you really see it by, for example, the number of mega deals. In 2018, 2019, the deal value spiked and it more than doubled. Um, and that is really because of these massive influx of mega funds like SoftBank, but not only them and then corporate investors. And it's a new phenomenon. We've always had corporate investors at a certain level, but never to this level. And I think it's because they're really starting to realize at the board level that disruption is here to stay as a constant threat. Um, and they can be disrupted not by their key existing incumbent competitors, but by totally unknown startups that come whizzing by them you know, at a much faster rate of speed that can then knock them off their perch. So they've jumped into this market very intensively. Um, and I'll just pause there. That's clear. Any questions on that? No, that? That's great. So right now in today's market, what are you seeing? What are the goals or achievements that a company, an AI company needs to do in order to be looking to raise an A? Where, where is the, sure. the competition? I'll get to that. Just I want to go back to the last question because I didn't ever answer specifically about valuations, which I have from this data. So according to, again, PitchBook, the seed valuations increased modestly from seven to eight million on average. The A's from 25 to 29, and the B's went from 76 to 88, and the B plus. So that's it shows you the bifurcation of those two markets. One is really accelerating in 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 in, uh, in, broad, in valuation, and the others are growing, but at a more modest pace. And then the number of deals stayed about the same. Um, it's it's sort of flat, um, and the dollar amounts invested actually were, were sort of flat across this year, 2018, 2019. 2018, on the other hand, was a real surge in, in uh, dollars being put into the market, again, driven a lot by those big mega funds and corporates. So that's the, the land. Now I can answer the second question, which was about AI and what should an entrepreneur think of when they come to meet us or any other VC and or, you know, also angels and also corporates. And it's a little different for each of those groups. Remember, angels are often motivated by their knowledge of the domain or their knowledge of the entrepreneur or their ability to move fast. So those would be the three uh, motivating factors for angels. And they're, they're very good. We like to work with angels. Um, some VCs don't, but we 
think they add a lot of value if it's properly structured and if they, you know, are there when the entrepreneur wants them. And classic VC like ourselves, which are, we're financially oriented, but we also you know, like to add value. And so we try and help companies buy knowledge of the domain. And so, for example, our fintech portfolio is very extensive now. And so we have quite good relationships with lenders and lawyers who understand this realm and the regulators and the whole ecosystem and recruiters that are specialized here so that we can speak their language and help them with uh, more than just money. And then there's the corporates, which are more specialized, and they're not financially oriented generally. Sometimes they are, but mostly they're interested in helping the rest of their business. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's it's a double-edged sword. On the positive, they can be massively helpful in distribution. On the other hand, it's almost always that you're the tail and they're the dog. And, you know, who's wagging who? So it they can sort of swing you off in a, in, a, in a direction that's not in your overall company interest, but it helps them for some specific strategic goal they have. So that has to be managed. Um, now, what attracts us? I'll, so I'll speak mostly for what attracts um, financial-oriented classic uh, Silicon Valley-style VCs, whether they're in Silicon Valley or, or other countries, doesn't really matter. We all sort of think relatively similar. Um, and I'd say the first thing that we're looking for is that you know, great entrepreneurial team, and maybe I'll give the example of Nutanix, which I think you know the company. You know, three absolutely brilliant guys came to us. They were you know, all very hungry and driven and intensely passionate about solving this problem that they had perceived in the growing need for digital storage. And the first, when they first came out, it was, they said we should virtualize storage. And then they've expanded now to much broader hyperconverged infrastructure and a whole bunch of other broader uh, problems that they solved. But the first point problem was very acute. We knew from our CIO council that this was a problem that the Fortune 500 were struggling to cope with because the rate of demand for increased digital storage was growing exponentially. And of course, the CIO wouldn't want anybody to spend an exponential curve to cover the cost. So they had to figure out a way of breaking that exponential demand curve and getting on a curve of linear uh, supply of storage devices or capability. So that was a brilliant team. Now, the other point, which is very closely linked, was that they were solving a large and important problem. And so I put those really two together by getting the feedback from our CIO council. And what we sort of did is we went to them and said, if the Nutanix team can build this, would you, any of you, buy this. And a number of hands went up in the room and some of them started to become their first beta sites and first customers. So that was a very good mixture of these two key points. Brilliant team that demonstrates competence in the domain, a passion for what they're doing, and a, a credible plan uh, by which to achieve those goals. And then solving a problem which has a, a pain point. And there's a famous phrase, I think John Doerr coined it, that, you know, will the, the dogs eat the dog food, but it, are you selling a painkiller or a vitamin? And it's really the painkiller that is much more effective. Um, now, there are other uh, points we can go on, but do you have that basic line there? And then there's some couple others. We yes. always like to talk about it in terms of six T's, the T being just a, a word that starts with T so that it's easy to remember. And the first one was the theme, which is the problem you're solving. The second one is the team, who's going to lead this and why are they capable and competent and so on. Then there's the terrain, and that would be the market, essentially. What, show us the competition. Show us why your product is going to differentiate itself, is going to be sustainably differentiated for a number of years going forward, um, how you will overcome you know, obstacles and competitive responses. So that's on the terrain. Then you go down to say traction or timing. And that would be essentially your go-to-market strategy. If you already have products uh, and customers, you know, tell us about that, but 
since we often do seed rounds or A, they often don't have much in the way of traction yet, so that's fine, but we need to know what their go-to-market strategies and how they will plan to achieve those milestones. Next on the list would be uh, technology, and that is, you know, how does it work? Why is this unique? How it can, be, can it be protected? Um, what kind of muscle force of an engineering team is going to be required to continue to develop it going forward? And then the last one uh, is terms. How much money is required? Is there anything specific about the governance of this company that's going to be, need to be an, an unusual? And those are really the, the key factors that I think most VCs would look at. They might rate them in a different uh, order or have another name for them, but that's more or less the kinds of things we're looking for. And then we can go specifically into AI. Um, would you like to do that? With some well, I, have, I have a question before uh, we go further. Sure. And this is, this is specifically for, for listeners who maybe want to pitch you. If I, want to, if I have an AI company and I want to pitch you, do mm. I just need to have a deck with six slides covering those six, six items? That, no, that, it would be more than exactly. it'd be more than six slides typically. I mean, you, you might yeah. be extremely economical and, 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 and terse with your wording and be able to get it on the six slides, but um, we're we're patient. I mean, I didn't even mention financials, right. but you know, those are we need to look at that too to see yes. the budget and how especially the cash flow, how that's going to play out and um, what kind of planning are you're doing? Are you raising for a very short period, you know, a year, or you're thinking more of the classic 18 months, or are you thinking sort of a conservative way, uh, let me raise for two years, because I might need a pivot along the way. So that, that financial area is quite good. There'll be a section on biography, you know, which might be more than a page, because there's a bunch of people on the team. Um, yeah. It's great to have a few slides, frankly, on the technology and how it actually works with the architecture and what the interdependencies are, and the marketing slide or two is usually good. First, you explain the size and the dynamics of the market, and then you have another slide or two on the competitive issue. So yeah, you know, a 20-page uh, slide deck is not a problem. No, that, that's that's great though. That's it's it's always good when when people explain really what their expectations are. Uh, so thank you. Yeah, thank you and I'll give you one more thing. A few little tricks. I particularly like to see it in our firm. We really like the the kind of slide in market competitors where you go product feature by feature or functionality by functionality uh, along one side of the axis and then the competitors down the other. And then there's usually these graphs that are like targets and you fill them in fully if the competitor is completely competent or halfway if they're medium or blank if they don't have anything that competes with you. Because nothing's black and white and it's good to show that nuance of how far evolved your product is versus the others or vice versa. And to show whether you know, you're know you very strong here, you're moderately strong here, you're weak there. but Suss that out for us. It's, it's good for you as an entrepreneur to know this. Yes. Don't try and bluff. It's, it's really good to have self-knowledge and self-awareness. And if you carry that off com, you know, clearly, it comes across and it will be seen as sincere and something that you can trust. And that's very, very helpful. Right. And so right. I like those kind of things. Clearly, as an investor, you're, you're betting on the team. So uh, building trust with your investors is, is, is crucial to to. Exactly. And so, for example, if you say, oh, we don't have any competition, it always begs the question, you know, are you trying to hide it from us or you really haven't looked? Because there's almost always some kind of competition. You might even say, look, there's not direct competition, but here are the substitute threats which we think about and there and are alternatives to buying. Because when you're starting with a new product, the biggest enemy is somebody saying, thank you, very interesting, but I'll just stick with what I'm doing now, which may be nothing. And so the inertia problem is um, important to be able to combat or to articulate how you get over that catalyst level. There's a kind of a, um, 
you know, extra energy bursts. And that's why the charisma of the founding team is frankly pretty important. And they say, uh, I think some scientific studies have shown that from university like uh, business schools, that if you, the founder can sell the first 10 or 20 customers, that's a, probably a very good training for the DNA of the company. Great advice. And then looking specifically at an AI company. Yes. Dive into that. All right, sure. Well, first of all, um, there's an interesting little um, secret, and that is that AI is not alone. It's almost always a twin, and the twin is big data, because AI without data doesn't have sufficient training set. And the data without the AI is too big and too ungainly to analyze and too costly. So you need these two going together. And the new, I shouldn't forget, we have these wonderful people in the hardware world, which build, you know, GPUs now, graphical processing units, which are able to parallelize the uh, computational um, demands of neural networks, which are now multi-layers deep. And <clears throat> so wonderful people at, at uh, NVIDIA and Intel and others have built these hardware that make us go, you know, hundreds of times faster than we did um, a few years ago. So you need those three things um, that, you know, hardware is relatively commodity now and available. So Rare points where you can differentiate yourself are going to be on the algorithms, which is, we'll call it the AI, and then on the data set, whether you're using open source data or whether you have some more proprietary data or you're somehow creating uh, data from the analysis that you do. So all those are components in adding value and making you more distinctive and showing, uh, obviously, customer uh, value as well. Excellent. So that's the first part. Now, second part is you have to have you know, mastery over this data. Um, you can, again, I mentioned that you can have it uh, from open source or others, but you need to show that you understand it well, that your algorithm will dive into it deeply, comprehensively, uh, show value in the, the signal that it's deriving rather than just noise. Um, you need to be able to clean, cleanse the data and uh, make sure that there, there's some specific things in AI which uh, relate to issues like, for example, bias in the model. Um, I was at a session at South by Southwest where I think I saw you last year, and we were seeing some very interesting sessions on dermatology and ophthalmology. And for example, if you train your data set on you know, people from China and then you come to the United States, you know, frankly, the pigment of the skin has different medical uh, implications. And so, for example, they were giving the example that with retinas of brown-eyed people, um, if you've trained your data set on blue-eyed people, then you'll miss some of the lesions in the retinas of the brown-eyed folks. So you've really got to think about that. So, so avoid bias. That's an important point. And it's also by law, I think, now in um, issues like credit underwriting. You have to show that you're not disadvantaging any groups and so on. And then another area is model drift. And you need to be showing us how you're going to deal with that because it, it, it happens. It just, it's not something you can really avoid. And so what are the ways that you're, you're dealing with it? There's also the issue of data security because people are very... Um, concern these days about privacy and their laws like GDPR in the UK, and, and, sorry, in Europe, and then there's a similar law in the States, in, in California now, that are guarding, you know, privacy, PII, personally identifiable information data. So if you're an AI company dealing with that kind of stuff, that has to be dealt with and, and uh, very clearly adhere to all the regulations and laws and rules. Then there is the issue of transparency. Most people uh, in the regulated industries don't like black boxes. And so while that might be very appealing to an entrepreneur to say, oh, I'm going to keep this wonderful algorithm, I figured out it's going to keep it secret. It depends on the domain. Some domains are forgiving of that, um, maybe cybersecurity, but um, other domains are not. And they want to know, how are you making this underwriting decision? Or right. why are you making this diagnosis? So 
That's another one. Um, adaptability. This is important. And there's a company actually in our portfolio that helps on this. Is the, does hyperparameter tuning, which is an arcane term, but it's important in, in the AI world. That company is called SIGOPT. And, and they and others um, help get rid of some of the drudge work that these very valuable, very highly trained PhD um, data scientists, algorithmic experts don't really want to do. So as there's a huge talent shortage in this realm, there's just not enough people trained in AI, then finding these tools like hyperparameter tuning as a service that can be segmenting your workflow and having the sort of mundane work, which is not so fun and challenging, done by, frankly, other computers and programs, while your great research scientists um, can develop the new algorithms and improve uh, things at a you know, very fast pace. So that's uh, important. Um, demonstrate value. There are many customers who, again, will reject these brilliant models by saying, show me the delta. Where does this add value to my existing business? If good enough is good enough, I'm not going to change what I do. Um, and then again, we've talked about uh, recruiting talent. So Bloomberg Capital has um, got a secret weapon and you know, not everyone can get this, but in our Israeli office, we hired the head of HR from the famous 8200 unit, which is the equivalent of the NSA. She was head of that whole unit for HR. So she knows thousands of people. She knows that they all, because they were recruited into this elite unit, they've all got very high level credentials as just brain power and training. Then she knows the training that they've gone through. She knows the products the projects that they worked on, she knows their interests and their particular um, goals for career. And so she can say, oh, I know this guy wants to work in Tel Aviv. This guy wants to work in, you know, Munich. That lady right. wants to work on biotech. This one wants to be in cybersecurity. And she can then help. And so she's been helping, you know, place people with our companies, very senior, solid technical people that are so hard to find because she can fit them to the right setting where they're, they have a cultural fit. They like what they're doing. They're passionate about the impact of the, you know, project they're working on. So that's a, a secret advantage is recruiting and retaining them is important too. So treat them well once you get them. And then um, I guess last one would be, you know, defining the target market and competition. And some of the competition will be non-AI. And don't think you're only competing against other AI solutions. Sometimes there are more conventional solutions, which will be sort of, I'll call them a slant rhyme or a substitute threat that yes. can um, also be a barrier to sales. That's some, some excellent advice. So David, who else do you see, see doing a great job in this space? Oh, gosh, that's hard to say. First of all, let me just you know, try and make that a little bit more nuanced. There are different, like uh, the, I think the Australians say, horses for courses. Right. There are people who are very good at a certain stage that would not be you know, optimal at a later stage. So you know, a number of angels play a very crucial role because they back you when you don't have anything to show because they know you. They um, are loyal because they're your friend. They will um, help bring the first customers because, again, they're operating on a trust basis. And maybe some of them know the domain very well. So that's where maybe certain angels do really, really well. Um, VCs like us, I mean, you should interview them just as they interview the entrepreneur. And you should do reference checks on us just as we do reference checks on you. And you should find out whether we have domain competence, are we a, you have generally good judgment? Are we you know, reasonable people and not jerks? Um, yep. Are we fair? Uh, those are all important things for an entrepreneur to understand because you know, you're going to live with us for years. There was a point, I think, at which the average VC entrepreneur relationship became longer than the average American marriage. Perhaps a very sad statement on the state of American matrimony, but it shows you that the, the life cycle of relationship between VC and entrepreneur is long and it can be complex and it almost always goes through a roller coaster of success and failure and emotions and pivots and financings and struggles. So 
elastic band. You know, you have to give each other enough rope to stretch, but you also have to hug onto each other to, to stick together in the tough times as well. So, you know, those VCs, I, I can't name a, you know, a bunch of them because I leave out so many other friends that are terrific, but we've had a lot of good success. And I think it's on our website who we've invested with other, other firms. And since we're first, almost always first in, then a lot of these bigger, great firms, you know, would, would follow us. Now they're not necessarily following us, but they, you know, they do come afterwards in the, in the scope in the, uh, in the staging. Yes. And then there's corporate investors and those folks, they have to, you, you want them and yet you want to keep them on your terms. The, the thing that used to happen is that the, the corporates would put in these strange clauses, like you have to use our chip in whatever hardware you're building. And often it was not the right chip and it could cause problems. So those folks, you know, are very useful, but sometimes they overpay. And if you overpay and give too high valuation, it may sound wonderful to the entrepreneur, but the analogy I would give is a little bit like a sugar high. It might, you know, taste good for a moment, but it can really let you down. If your um, company doesn't grow into that valuation, then you can have a down round and down rounds are extremely punishing for the founders. So VCs are a little bit more tuned to what the real market is. Strategics, again, aren't so motivated by getting the right valuation. And so they're willing to let it slide. And again, it may sound great to an entrepreneur, but I think that's the kind of an entrepreneur that's thinking short-term, not long-term. Long-term, you want a steady growth, like plateau, rising to plateau, rising to plateau uh, in your valuations. You do not want a roller coaster. You know, we went too high here and then we had to drop it down and then we went back up. That's not a recipe for happy board or happy entrepreneurial life. Does that make sense? So rather than naming individuals, I would say that um, a v, an entrepreneur should also look for a board that has a diverse set of opinions and yet they're unified enough to work together. So some of the problems that come up in a board are syndicate, let's call it centrifugal forces. For example, if one investor is late in their fund and they need exit, they might be pressuring the entrepreneur to sell quickly. If another entrepreneur has just gotten, another VC has just gotten in and they have a very long-term horizon, they might want to let that entrepreneur grow the business significantly. Now, those two VCs might then become at loggerhead because one wants an exit and one wants growth. So these are the kind of things that an entrepreneur has to think about. And we frankly, help specialize in helping form syndicates because we're almost always the first institutional investor. We know which friends we'd like to bring along. And, and again, even among our friends, sometimes one friend, let's call them friend A, might be better for this company and friend B more suited for another company. So these are custom-built coalitions. Let's call it coalitions of the willing, and you'd want coalitions of the competent. And so those kinds of things are important to build. And it's, it's a dialogue that you have with the lead investor and you help bring in the right folks to fill in the gaps. For example, if we have a company that is mainly folks in North America, but we know they're going to be doing some significant work in Europe or in East Asia. We might want to bring in a, in the Series B a VC that specializes in helping uh, companies expand into those geographical regions. So I'll pause there and uh, you can mm, ask that's, that's That's great advice. If people want to connect with you, how do they do that? Well, I'm David at BloombergCapital.com. Um, and That's really I think cool. there's, you know, our website has a lot of information and it's really good to look at our website before you'd write to me because, you know, are we the right firm for you? Look and see if you're you know, doing a late stage deal, probably shouldn't come to us. If you're early stage and you're, you know, highly capital efficient because you're a software company, you're exploring new tough domains that are challenging. That's what we love. Um, and we remember the CIO council we have, this technical recruiter we have, those are the kinds of things where we're going to add extra special value. Um, and our domains, which are listed on the website, would be particularly things that are AI enabled. 
such as fintechs, enterprise software, analytics, cybersecurity, healthcare, mobility, uh, et cetera, logistics. It's a, it's a very exciting world because there's so much new that is being powered by this AI revolution and you know, hardware and software. And it's just at the beginning. We're really just starting to see it take hold. And it, it has many, many years or decades to go in the future. Excellent. David, thank you very much for being part of the show. My pleasure. Thanks, Murray. I'm Murray Newlands. You've been listening to the How to CEO podcast. Thank you for subscribing and we'll see you next time.